right, hey, welcome to day 58 of our journey through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapters 1 through 3, Psalm 27, and Mark chapter 9, verse 33, through chapter 10, verse 12. Okay, Leviticus. Um, this actually, I think, is a great book um, to get to know. Um, everything from the sacrificial rituals to a lot of the uh, moral commandments here teach us a ton about um, religion in ancient Israel and like what the, uh, the the people of God in the Old Testament were called to do in order to deal with sin and in order to worship God. And a lot of that actually contributes to our understanding of what Jesus did for us, um, the significance of his death on the cross. A lot of the, the patterns and things that are set up in the Old Testament are fulfilled in him and by understanding the old, you could get a firmer grasp on what's going on in the new. And then, of course, there's even a lot of ethical insights that using good interpretive practices for reading Old Testament law, we can learn a lot about God and his will from the book of Exodus, of Leviticus, rather. Um, speaking of its connection with the book of Exodus, uh, note that the two are basically kind of like seamlessly put together. Exodus ends with telling us that the, the cloud that represents God's God's glory covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And with Moses unable to enter the tabernacle, and then Leviticus chapter one verse one just starts right there. And Yahweh called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, "And you get the book of Leviticus." So um, the, the, this is very much the same thing to the extent to where, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but um, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the Hebrew Old Testament, the first five books are just named after the first word um, of, of uh, each book. And so Genesis is uh, Bereshit, which is in the beginning, and uh, the book of Exodus is Ve'ele Shemot, which literally just means, and these are the names. And then Leviticus, I think, is the weirdest one, which is just Vayikra, and he called <laughs> from the from the and the Lord called Moses uh, clause. So, yeah. Um, and right off the bat in Leviticus, we start receiving instructions for how to worship God through the sacrificial system. And um, as we go through this, I think we'll learn more and more, hopefully, about how this stuff worked. Um, and some of it kind of is like a puzzle that you fit together um, in, in figuring out what the Old Testament sacrifices were thought to do and how they um, how they affected the people and how they affected God. Um, but yeah, and as we go through it, I'll try to address as much of that um, just naturally as we come to things. And it's going to tell us about all of the major types of offerings that are given in the, um, in the Old Testament that, that were used for, for the worship of the Lord. Um, the first being the burnt offering, and then we'll read about the grain offering, the peace offering, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. And this first round of talking about all of these offerings concerns um, a lot about—it's kind of oriented towards the worshiper, the person who has come and brought the sacrifice, whereas um, after this, uh, 
up in chapter, what is it, like chapter six, you start um, seeing what the how the priests are supposed to, um, what what they're supposed to be doing. Um, so the first kind of round of the uh, different procedures for the different offerings are somewhat incomplete because it doesn't explain uh, as much as we're going as it doesn't give all the information that we're going to get for each kind of offering. So the first kind of offering, and we've seen this one a bunch of times already, are the burnt offerings, and these are offerings in which the entire animal, print uh, more or less, is um, is consumed on the altar. There is there is nothing left, and uh, with with the exception of very minor parts, uh, but it all is devoted to the Lord. It all is an ishe, a offering by fire, or as the English Standard Version translates, um, a food offering. This is the Lord's portion. What you burn on the altar is the Lord's portion. And here we learn that when you bring a burnt offering, it can be from the herd, and that so that's uh, how they're mainly going to be, um, and uh, in. And if it's uh, if it is the the flock we're talking about, it can be a sheep or a goat, and it has to be a male without blemish. And you bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. The worshiper lays his hand on the offering, and uh, remember we talked about how um, this is probably not, as is sometimes thought, a transfer of sin or guilt onto the offering, because that would then make the offering defiled. And you're going to go and bring that in contact with the holy altar and everything that 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 doesn't work. Um, it seems it seems actually like we're we're kind of told uh, that uh, that this is a gesture that means like this is for me. This is this is mine, and um, that is essentially what it says, right? That that he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So another thing we learn here about the burnt offering is that it is an atonement-making sacrifice. That's not all it does. It can be offered for other purposes. And this is an um, important concept to realize about Old Testament sacrifices, is that not all of them were done in order to effect atonement. There were multiple reasons. It could just be thanksgiving, right? It could be... Um, uh, a, n- a number of things, um, uh, uh, peace offerings, right, are not atonement-making offerings, and it, it's uh, there's very specific uh, reasons why burnt offerings and sin offerings, the different kinds of offerings and guilt offerings, would be used. And this is just saying that when a burnt offering is involved, here's what you do, and it tells us that the burnt offering is an atonement-making offering. Uh, so the, the the worshiper lays the head his hand on on the head of the of the sheep or the goat, and then he's the one who kills it, uh, which is probably the slitting of its throat. Uh, then the priests take the blood and keep in mind this is a messy business. Um, if you imagine now, it's it's not as if people are constantly offering like every single day they're bringing animals, right? This is much more um, sporadic, I think, than sometimes we get the impression of. But uh, yeah, um, nevertheless, this is basically just this huge. Uh, it's probably it's probably a little bit crass to call it a barbecue, but this this ongoing just burning of flesh and blood and this place would have been a mess. Um, 
the, and so the priests take the blood and they are to throw it on the side of the altar. That is the bronze altar. And then the pre, and then the man who offers the offering flays the animal apart, and then the priests arrange it um, on the altar. Um, the entrails are to be washed as well as the legs, probably because those come in contact with unpleasant um, things. Um, and then they're burned on the altar. Likewise, if it's to be a if it's a bird or, or a turtle dove or a pigeon, th- those are the kinds of birds that can be um, offered: turtle doves and pigeons. Um, its its head is wrung and its crop is removed. Okay, its insides are are taken out. So again, like the the part that holds the uh, the excrement is discarded, but everything else then is is uh, placed on the altar. Um, then we have grain offerings, much less bloody. Okay, but and and um, but but also just as important in the sacrificial system. Um, th- these are to be made with fine flour. Okay, so not just you're not just bringing like raw grains there, but this is fine flour um, and oil and frankincense um, is. Uh, is to be used in making these. Uh, and the priest takes a handful uh, on of it and places it on the altar, which is the memorial portion, the offering by fire or the food, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the food offering as the ESV translates it, the Isha. And the rest of it is for the priests. One thing that we sometimes don't realize in the sacrificial system is that the priests, job, there had to have been a lot of them on duty because their job was to eat a lot of the offerings. So here we see that their portions um, is everything but that handful that they place on the altar. Um, Different standards are going to go if the grain offering is baked, um, in which case they bring unleavened, of course, because you you can't put leaven on the altar, uh, loaves or wafers, um, and the, the Portions for which uh, the portions that are the lords and the portions that are the priests are not specified here. Um, it's very similar for pan-cooked breads. Um, but in either case, one of the big points here is that no leaven or no honey can be offered on the altar. And that is uh, probably because of the association of uh, the process of fermentation with decay and death, okay? And this isn't, um, it, it's not as if they have an advanced scientific understanding. Uh, it doesn't even matter how much on point they are with what's actually going on in these processes. The fact of the matter is, is their understanding of what is going on with honey and with leaven is uh, that there is um, th- that there is decay involved. And so these things are not to be brought into the... Um, into the holy precincts. Okay, next up we learn a little bit about peace offerings. And here, um, it could be either a lamb or a goat. It could be either male or female, in contrast with the burnt offering, which can be only male. And uh, But these animals also must be unblemished. And uh, then you bring the, uh, you, you lay your hand on the offering, just like you do with the uh, burnt offering, and the worshiper kills the animal. Uh, the priests place the blood on the side of the altar, and then <clears throat> the portions for Yahweh are specified. Uh, the that is the isha. Uh, you have the fat of the entrails, the kidneys with their fat, the fat tail in the case of a lamb, uh, the long lobe of the liver, 
uh, did I say liver? Liver, we all know what I'm talking about. And this is placed on top of the burnt offering, which is most likely that um, daily morning offering that we learned about in Exodus, right? One one uh, burnt offering is placed every morning and one is placed every evening. And um, here we also learn that the fat or the blood is um, not to be consumed as well. And so animals that are to be offered um, must be drained of their blood. Okay, let's take a look at Psalm 27. This, uh, like most of the Psalms we've looked at, are is a, is a Psalm of David. And uh, here, uh, the main idea is Yahweh is my light and salvation. And that being the case, whom shall I fear? Evildoers? No. An army? No. And um, here is um, an interesting turn here, very similar to what we saw in Psalm 26, remember where it's like, I go around your altar uh, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling of your wondrous ways. Here again, we have uh, David's passion for worship, passion for the kind of thing that we're reading about now in Leviticus. One thing that I have asked, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever— and it isn't because he just loves sacrifice so much, right? It's because the presence of the Lord is there, um, and um, and I think that this is this is an interesting thing, right? Because there is some um, some strangeness here about the concept of dwelling in the house of the Lord. It's not as if the the house of the Lord just like you you can just enter in and set up a cot or something like that. No, this is an expression for how he wants to be in the presence of God, um, to gaze upon God's beauty, to inquire in his temple. Um, the sacrifices that are offered here in this psalm are accompanied by shouts of joy. It's not, oh no, we got to do this, but but it is joy for what the Lord has done. Um, and uh, speaking to the Lord, verse 8 says, You have said, Seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Yahweh, do I seek. Notice the intimate relationship with the Lord there, seeking the face, the presence of the Lord. Um, forsake me not, even though my, my father and my mother have forsaken me, Yahweh will take me in. So what a wonderful psalm of worship this is. Okay, finally, we turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 33, through chapter 10, verse 12. Here, uh, Jesus is uh, back in Capernaum, and he is in the house, probably indicating the house of Andrew and Peter, where well, we saw Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law. Um, I don't know how important that is. I think what the, the real thing here is that he's in private again. And remember, gradually opening their eyes— as they go with him and learn more about who he is and what is the nature of his kingdom. And here Jesus calls them out. What were you discussing on the way? And they're silent because they had actually been arguing when one, of course, gets the idea that Jesus knows exactly what was going on. In fact, they were arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus teaches them on this, right? That if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That the one in the kingdom of God who is great is the one who is humble, the one who is a servant. And then he takes a child, and <clears throat> taking the, this child in his arms, okay, he, he doesn't just like stand him up and, and point to him. He takes the child 
in his arms, and he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not him, not me, but him who sent me. Just a, a wonderful verse. It's meant a lot to me as an adoptive parent, of course, and um, just anybody who who um, loves children in the name of Jesus, right, can relate to this, whether you volunteer in your church's um, children's ministry or, or just take an interest in your child's life um, or any child's life um, for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, this is a beautiful thing in Christ's in Christ's eyes, which is kind of shocking to the disciples, right? Because the where if you're a disciple of a rabbi, right? Like this is this is grown up time, right? This is this is what the men talk about, um, and here Jesus is paying special attention to a little child. Okay, then um, <clears throat> John, uh, one of his disciples. Uh, this one of the sons of Zebedee, says to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And Jesus tells them, Don't do that, because anyone who is doing a mighty work in my name um, will not be able soon after to speak evil of me. Right? Like, they're, they're near the kingdom. They're, they're, they're not quite there yet, but, but don't discourage them. Um, he, the one who is not against us is for us. So, you know, again, like he, here's this guy who's, who's not quite there yet. And Jesus is like, well, he's coming. Don't, don't, don't discourage him from becoming full on, um, uh, for, for the one who is not against us is for us. Um, and so we yeah, have this encouragement that, that, that there are others who, who are close and who are coming, um, once again, uh, Jesus talks about one of these little ones who believe in me, which is sometimes unclear whether he's talking about literal children or uh, this is a way we saw in Matthew in which he talks about his disciples. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to, and I never really understand why the English Standard Version says sin here. In Throughout this paragraph, it's not sin, it's stumble. Whoever causes one of them to stumble, um, is um, it would be better for him that a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So think about that when you about about making your brother or your sister stumble, and then he turns the tables on 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 us. All right, it's not just not making others stumble, but what about you? If your if your hand causes you to stumble, if your foot, if your eyes, cut them off, gouge them out. Um, it's that that's the seriousness with which we need to take our discipleship of Jesus. And if there's part of me, even something that I love, even something that's important to me, that is causing me to stumble in my walk with Christ, then it is better for that thing to not be in my life. And the reason isn't just because it it's uh you know uh, makes me sad or 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 stops me from my full human potential, but there is a real threat of judgment here. Um, because it's better to lose those parts of you, Jesus says, than with all your parts to be thrown into hell. Here, Gehenna, right? This is this this uh, flaming garbage heap outside of Jerusalem that is used as a metaphor for hell. And most of the times when you read hell in the Bible, that's uh, what it talks about. I mean, Jesus is the one who usually uses that uh, expression. 
And um, the the nature of this final judgment of God, of course, is is not always entirely clear, but it is terrible. It's something that we should fear. Something, note, that it is better to lose limbs in this life, by far, far better to lose limbs in this life than to, than to go there. Um, here described as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, that there's no way to stop um, the, the destructive nature, the destructive power of this judgment for those who um, stumble and ultimately fall away in their walks with Christ. And then, um, interestingly, um, we have something that we read today in Leviticus, chapter 2, verse 13, referenced, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Okay, now this is most likely, as I said, a reference to Leviticus 2.13, which we read today. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. Uh, you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your, with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Um, there's different understandings of why that is. It's not explained in the text, and so we do have to be a little bit careful. Just like the thing with the, the honey and the leaven, right? It's association with fermentation and death. It's conjectural. It seems to be the case. Um, so, you know, some have offered, for example, the idea that salt in the offerings um, is symbolic of uh, preservation, and so the enduring nature of the covenant. Um, I, I don't know exactly how sure we could be about that, but the question is, what does Jesus mean by this here? Here, it seems to be a metaphor for uh, judgment, just like Gehenna is, um, it will be uh, the salting with fire um, being the idea that uh, the grain offering is consumed with fire and it has salt on it. So again, it's it's not that clear exactly what Jesus means by it, why he me mentions it here, but that's kind of the best stab at it that I'm aware of. Um, and then, of course, Jesus turns in uh, verse 50 for a positive uh, use of the metaphor of salt, hearkening back to what we saw back in Matthew in the Ser Sermon on the Mount, okay, that, right, you're the salt of the earth. So salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it uh, salty again? Uh, again, presumably having something to do with stumbling, like another reason why not to stumble, so that you don't lose your saltiness. Um, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Okay, that final statement. Remember what spurred a lot of this on. Uh, these disciples are arguing with one another over who is the greatest. So be at peace with one another. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you very much again for joining me. I definitely very much look forward to being with you again tomorrow. Until then, keep reading scripture, keep growing from it, and take care. Bye-bye.